box dye is not good for your hair. Fucked up mistakes. Like marketing tick box. Nobody wants mold in their product. Honestly, I'm just a little cringy about it. And it's considered actually one of the most dangerous ingredients. Welcome to our Vanity Lab, a podcast about the beauty of science and marketing by a makeup-loving cosmetic chemist and a skincare-obsessed marketing expert. Each week, we deliver industry news like debunking myths, confirming facts, and let you in on the tea you didn't even know you wanted to know. I'm your host, Laura. And I'm Emmy, and you're listening to Vanity Lab. Hello and welcome to our Vanity Lab. This week, we're going to get into how we're all dyeing our hair at home this quarantine, the purpose of preservatives, and why not all eyeshadows are always safe for your eyes. So we're going to start today's podcast with an article you found, Emmy, about hair care. So I recently read um, that one of the main British hair color brands, so box dyes that are available at like the drugstore, saw a 1,200% sales like uptick since lockdown started. So essentially everyone is dyeing their hair at home. Do you have any like kind of thoughts on that, Laura? Um, I think it's just super funny because people are just like extremely bored and box dyes aren't one of the things that are super sold out right now so people are buying it people are testing it out and i think it also doesn't help that like snapchat and instagram and i think tiktok may have like filters where you can kind of see what your hair would look like and then people are like okay well i like my hair blue so i'm gonna dye it blue but i really want to see after the quarantine at, at all the hairstylists kind of like cringing and kind of like trying to fix everybody's fucked up mistakes no i know i um i totally agree with that too because like box dyes not good for your hair, um, especially if you regularly go to your hairstylist um, or, you know, colorist. And I remember kind of towards the beginning when we started our um, Safer at Home initiative and I posted a story about maybe like cutting my own bangs and my hairstylist slid into my DMs and she's like, girl, just like, don't do it. Um, and then like three days later, she sent out an email to all of our clients being like, just a reminder that you don't want to use box dyes and my color correction services start at $200 an hour and they usually take multiple hours. But then she also offered to like do curbside drop-offs of like your toning stuff. (laughs) So I thought that was really cool. And that kind of like goes into the trend too, that we've really seen a rise in businesses offering virtual consultations. Um, I know Philip Kingsley was doing that in the UK um, and quite a number of like dermatologists and stuff are, are still providing that to their patients, you know, here in the States. So I think that's really cool. It really adds that other touch point for um, accessibility. Yeah, I really, really like that. And I just think it's so funny, like just scrolling through TikTok or Instagram, people are like dyeing their hair and with like box dyes. And I'm just like cringing on the inside because box dyes are not as good for your hair than going to the hair size and get it professionally done. There's a big fat difference and people need to remember that. Well, and also just like hair coloring is such a technical thing. And especially with bleach, my favorite quarantine hair, like hashtag things to follow are the at-home bleach jobs because people are over banding. They're going in like over previously like box dyed hair and like just chunks are falling out. It's like my biggest nightmare, but it's kind of shot in 40 to like watch. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's so funny when I see someone with as dark and black hair as mine and they try to go as like bleach blonde as like a Barbie. And I'm like, oh my God, your hair's going to be orange, <laughs> orange, or it's going to fall out. Because let me tell you, I did that back in high school and my hair was orange. So I would not recommend people bleaching their hair at home. 
especially if you have black hair or dark brown brunette whatever don't bleach your own hair it's not gonna be cute trust yeah at that point i'm just maybe shave your head <laughs> yeah i definitely like redyed it dark and then it was like fried and dead and i ended up having cutting it super short and i didn't love it so don't dye your fucking hair just go to a professional they're trained they're certified they're licensed for a reason. I was going to say, like, if you do anything, if you really want, like, a color change or something, maybe slide into your colorist or stylist. If you have one's DMs and see which products they actually recommend you using. Like, I know Overtone is um, a pretty healthy option because it's a conditioning butter. I know Joyco has a color butter that's pretty conditioning also. And they're more, like, demi-permanent, so they're not as damaging. But definitely recommend check in with your hair person. Yeah, for sure, because they know what's been going on with your hair for however long you've been with them. So they're going to know what products are going to be best for your hair. They are your hair expert at this point. So listen to them. Don't dye your own hair. Don't cut your own hair. Just it's fine. You can let everything grow out. You're literally at home alone. No one's going to care. I promise. No one's going to care. All right. So I know a lot of people are taking this time to, you know, like me, really dig through um, their beauty stash or doing online shopping um, just because they're bored in the house and in the house bored. (laughs) Um, But like one of the huge um, selling points within marketing is parabens and preservatives and being paraben free. Um, I just really wanted to get your take on that because we were talking about it like off podcast before and you had some really good insights. Yes. So for the most part, cosmetics and personal care products are tended to be used in direct contact with your body. So you apply it on your skin, near your eyes. So it makes it really, really important that these products to be free from harmful contaminants. So therefore, these products have to have effective preservative systems because cosmetics are not really expected to be completely free of all microorganisms as they're not applied to sterile surfaces, but they do need to be free of high virulent microbial pathogens, especially when it comes to products when you apply it to your eye area because you have your cornea right there. And so when consumers use cosmetics and personal care products, they are repeatedly challenging them by contaminating them with their unclean hands. When you reach your hands in and out of your, your moisturizer jar or your multiple use mascara, you know, you get the point of like just kind of recontaminating it over and over again. There's an excessive amount of bacteria and fungi that can affect your cosmetic in a number of ways. And it can cause odors. It can destabilize your emulsion, which means that it's going to cause separation. So sometimes you'll see that oily film above your formulation and it can cause color changes, which is things we do not want to happen. And microorganisms can not only affect the formulation negatively, but it can also affect the consumer negatively, ranging from harmless itching to sometimes more serious infections, even blindness if the product is used around the eyes, which we do not recommend sharing eye products like mascara due to this and why it's vital to throw away your old mascara because you can be subject to an eye infection this way. Currently, however, the FDA does not require any microbiology testing of cosmetics, though they do say the products which are not self-preserving must be contaminated with microorganisms. So essentially they're saying you need to test it, but like if you don't, you need to contaminate it and see if it grows kind of situation. So you're basically testing it. And if you're wondering what kind of testing this is called, it's called preservative challenge testing, also known as preservative efficacy testing, also known as PET testing. Basically, it's designed to verify the ability of a cosmetic to avoid microbial growth upon contamination that may be introduced during manufacturing or through normal consumer use. And this test demonstrates the efficacy of a product to stop the growth of five pathogenic microorganisms, including 
three bacteria and two fungi that can be commonly commonly grown in cosmetics and found in on human hands. <laughs> totally. Um, so in layman's terms, essentially parabens and preservatives, they increase the shelf life of the product, not only um, just for keeping the formula stable, but also from protecting the formula against like you interacting with it. And like this is a huge thing why, you know, you're really seeing some of the packaging move to um airless pumps um just because you're not able to like dig your fingers in um to any of the products like first thing that comes to mind for me is like a jar of moisturizer like you're constantly putting your hands in it all the time because let's be real we don't wash our hands prior to putting our moisturizer every time because i know i don't but like sometimes i do so it's just more of like protecting yourself protecting the product and nobody wants mold in their product yeah, or bacteria, or specifically in mascara. And I'm guilty of this too. I do not throw my mascara away as quickly as I should, but that can cause some really serious eye problems. Um, so from a marketing standpoint, I feel like there's a lot of fear mongering with parabens. Like the FDA's stance on parabens is, you know, they're FDA okay. Like they're not banned, etc. They're okay to be used in products. But one of my things is like the first thing you Google or the first thing that pops up when you Google parabens is the EWG site. And, you know, I have my own feelings about that, but I mostly dislike them just because. So the EWG is the Environmental Working Group and they their mission is has good intentions. You know, they really want to protect the, the consumers um, and educate the consumers, which is great. However, I think that can lead to fear mongering when you're not listening to like the scientists and the FDI. But like one of their points was that parabens can be um, like endocrine disruptors. But when you're looking at that too, the amount of parabens that are you're exposed to in most products are, aren't enough to completely disrupt what your, your body's producing on its own. And then also like furthermore, parabens are also naturally occurring things. Like like blueberries have parabens inside them just to preserve themselves. So, you know, there are still a bunch of natural parabens out there. So I think from a marketing standpoint, personally, I don't really care if there's parabens in my product, but I know a lot of end consumers do. So that's always a huge um, like marketing tick box. Yeah, I personally love parabens. And not like as a chemist, parabens are the most commonly used preservative. And this is because they are the most effective preservative and that's why you find it in so many products and the most common derivatives you'll find in cosmetics is going to be methylparaben, propylparaben, and butylparaben and these are effective against a broad spectrum of bacteria and fungi. As I mentioned there are five microorganisms that you need to fight off when you're adding preservative systems in there and parabens are really effective about fighting these off and since parabens are found in a wide variety of cosmetics and personal care products including makeup, moisturizers, hair care, shaving products and like literally anything there's there's normally when you look at ingredient list there's always more than one paraben in there and that is due to when they're using combination they're actually more effective at a lower percentage and so what i found really interesting was that the CIR or the Cosmetic Ingredient Review reviewed the safety of methylparaben, propylparaben, and butylparaben and concluded that they were safe in uses in cosmetics up to 25%. And typically in cosmetic products, they only range from 0.01 to 0.3%. And people find that because like I believe there was a research article that came out that was debunked that um, parabens have like carcinogenic potential due to causing like breast cancer and all that. Yeah. So that goes into parabens as being potential 
endocrine disruptors. And I think with that too, as I, um, I saw that article and a lot of that is potential and theoretical and like, yes, it could, but there are also no studies showing that it does. And then I believe, um, I want to say it was linked by the FDA, but I'm not sure. We'll pop it in our show notes, but it was saying that, the endocrine disruptors. So it was talking about how certain parabens can like maybe uptick and act as estrogen, but it doesn't act the same as the estrogen we produce internally. And the estrogen we produce internally is, um, you know, much more potent. Right. So the estrogen activity that can be compared to phytoestrogens actually that we eat. So phytoestrogens is a substance that is in plants, as you mentioned, which has estrogen-like qualities, which can be found, like you said, blueberries, but also in soybeans, clover, strawberries, sage, pumpkin, rosehip, and so many more things. And these are considered to be natural estrogenic effects, and they have 1,000 to 1 million times stronger than parabens that we put in our cosmetic products. So we don't need to be worried about parabens right now. Honestly, if your product says paraben-free, maybe you should look at it as a sign of it being unsafe instead of completely safe. All right. So we all know that I am addicted to TikTok. And I was scrolling through TikTok the other day. And, you know, since I'm also addicted to like skincare, I happen to follow quite a few dermatologists. And so one of the the ones that came up on my For You page was a dermatologist reacting to a consumer giving out really terrible advice. So this young girl, like I'm sure she was probably only 15. So she just doesn't know better, was in a Target and took, you know, the Cetaphil cleanser, right? This is a beloved, like dermatologist beloved cleanser because because it is so simple and effective and non-irritating. And she just like completely goes through the ingredient list saying how bad it is. So let's be real. For a reminder, the Cetaphil cleanser consists of water, acetyl alcohol, propylene glycol, SLS, sterile alcohol, methylparaben, propylparaben, and butylparaben. So those three parabens are the ones that you listed as like the most effective and least harmful because they're not really harmful. But she was like, all right, it's mostly water, two alcohols, and then three parabens. I'm like, uh, um, yeah, that's why everyone loves it. It is such a simple formula, which means it's not going to cause as many potential irritants or allergic reactions. And it's so affordable. So this is like a great all around product for like hundreds, if not, you know, millions of people. And then also, you know, this will probably be a different podcast, but like not all alcohols are drying. Like acetyl alcohol and zero alcohol are both like fatty alcohols. And so they're actually really hydrating and like soothing. Because when people see alcohol, they think of isopropyl alcohol which is like what you found in, you find in your toners and you put on your skin and it burns and it's like whatever. Acetyl alcohol is actually a solid ingredient that actually has a lot of esters in there and oils like olive oil, rosehip oil, all that have a lot of esters in there. It's just a solid form of an oil essentially, but what makes it an alcohol, it has something called an OH group attached to it. So therefore it makes it an alcohol, not because of isopropyl alcohol. It's not the same at all. So, and that like goes back to my fear mongering thing, you know, like people see acetyl alcohol and they get scared, they see parabens and they get scared. But, you know, at the end of the day, what you really need to do is, you know, ask your doctor, consult skincare professionals. Like I'm not, if you're a little bit more uh, financially indisposed currently, like I'm not saying you have to make an appointment with your dermatologist, but, you know, follow the dermatologists that are actually putting out educational material and learn learn from them. Like, and if you can consult your derm or your, your esthetician, or even just like your 
your general practitioner, your doctor, like find out what's working best for you. Like skincare is so individual. You know, some people might have certain allergies, but generally parabens just make products safer and like last longer on your your shelf because there's nothing worse than when you do shell out for a really high-end product if it just goes bad immediately. Like the shelf life's like three months and there's oil residue on the top and you're just like, gross, I spent how much money on this? And it's already disgusting. Like what is happening? Yeah. So personally, I'm pro parabens. Um, as a marketer, I will always, you know, try and give the end consumer what they want. So there's that. <laughs> Yeah. See, you have that mentality and I have the mentality of like, can we educate them? Because I'm tired of honestly formulating these products without parabens because that's what the consumer wants, but it makes your product less effective. I hope you guys realize that is that when you guys are saying, I want it to be free of this, that, and the other, and you use that as a reason why you buy it, you're sometimes you're taking away ingredients that would benefit you, your skin, and your formulation. You only technically need preservatives and products if they contain water. Microbes, only grow in water for the most part. They love water, they grow in water, they thrive. And so if your product has water in it, it generally will need a preservative. But if you have like a powder cleanser and it says preservative free, that's chill. Like that's perfectly fine. Like it can't grow in solid material. It has to grow inside water. So if you do see a product that says preservative free, but it's just like all powder, like don't fret, just chill. But a lot of times if you find like maybe like a lipstick that says preservative free and you think, oh, well, there's no water in there, right? It's just oils and waxes and stuff. You still need it because the saliva on your lips is made of water and it can grow mold on your lipstick. So if it can be in contact with water, then it needs a preservative. That's such a good point. And I think, um, you know, like one a lot of people don't think about often. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people really knew that. And I didn't personally know that myself till I went to school and like learned about it. And I was like, damn, this makes sense now. <laughs> so, Emmy, what kind of tea do you have to spill for me today? So, I don't know if you've seen it. I'm pretty sure you have. But Huda Beauty recently launched, like, three neon eyeshadow palettes. And it's kind of been trending on a bunch of different social media sites. And a couple of, like, beauty news sites have picked it up as well. But there is a over-label on the product, like, underneath. And... It states not for use around eyes, but all of the marketing components and brand imagery associated with this product launch and even the like word terminology is very eye centered. So how do you feel about this? Like as a marketer and you see this happening and you see it coming out like it, this obviously is affecting Huda Beauty negatively. Like how does this like how do you feel about this as a marketer? Oh, I'm just like, honestly, I'm just a little cringy about it. So personally, I don't think there is supposed to be like any shade about it. I don't think they're trying to be um, like maliciously ill intent or misleading the consumer. I think it was probably put there because their regulatory or legal advisor told them that because of this ingredient, they need to have that somewhere to diffuse liability. I think it's probably perfectly safe to actually put around your eyes. And there's probably just a little bit of studies um, that don't recommend it. Um, but I think it was in there mostly for legal reasons. But the way that it was done is still cringy. Yeah, like why did you have to put it on the back label? Like I get it, like that's a thing. If your packaging is small and you have a peel-off label, that's pretty normal. Like you see it on your chapstick all the time. But when something specifically 
specifically says that it's not safe for a specific area, I feel like that should be in a different, like more like upfront about it. But just as a fun fact in terms of the FDA and like color additives and colorants, color additives are actually the most regulated ingredient by the FDA. And it's considered actually one of the most dangerous ingredients currently in the cosmetic industry, just because especially when it has direct contact with the eyes and the cornea, because there's certain ingredients that whenever there's like contamination with your eye products so like I said with the whole preservatives blah 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 like because a lot of times people will spray like water on their brushes and tap it in their eyeshadow like that can be subject to like microbial growth cross-contamination from you know they're using their eyeshadow brush and it's coming into contact with like their eyeshadow primer or you know anything else that is residue like around your eye area. Yeah, so they're trying to protect against microbiological contamination and the contamination that can lead in the eye area can lead to like infections, allergy. Actually, in one case, there was actually blindness in the 1930s, which led to something called the positive list of colorants by the FDA. And the positive list positive list of colorants by the FDA are the only colors that are safe for the eyes. And so if you don't have, if there's an ingredient in your eyeshadow palette that's not on the positive list, you have to put not safe for eyes because those colorants are subject to contamination and possibly may cause you blindness. And I feel like, yes, it's going to be kind of like a very low percentage of people because there's only one person that got kind of led to blindness, but that's kind of like one too many. I think like you can't, you don't want to lose your eyesight due to putting on eyeshadow. But they're okay. So on the other hand, too, like not to deviate too much, but like even just looking at how different states like regulate eye tinting or like eyelash tinting, not eye tinting. But, you know, like when you're just looking at like the different regulations state to state, like in California, I can't legally get my eyelashes tinted, which sucks because I love getting my eyelashes tinted because I have some blonde eyelashes that don't show up. Right. But that's kind of the same it's the same idea that the stuff that I just mentioned about like how some of these colorants can cause blindness and one of the colorants used in eyelash tinting may cause blindness. It's not on that positive list of colorants. And so it's super strict for color additives in the United States. Every single color that is made has to be approved by the FDA and even every batch has to be approved by the FDA. So if you are a color additive like raw material maker each batch that you make you have to send it off to the fda for them to test and approve before you can even release it so fda really has their color additives like down on like lock and key so i like understand why the label's there and it's probably not gonna like cause you to be blind but it may cause you to be blind and some people have more sensitive eyes than others they may have i don't know maybe whenever you go to remove your makeup it gets in your eye and it irritates you so bad and like i feel like it should have been more of an upfront label, not the thing on the back. I Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, this is pretty common. Like, if you do your research, especially with some of the colors and, like, the more neon colors um, specific to this palette with other brands, they're going to have the same labels. Like, this one's blowing up right now because, one, we're all spending much more time on our phones. We're all spending more time on social media. And, you know, it's, it's relevant. Like, Cuda is a huge brand and it's beloved by, you know, many people. And so it's just getting a lot of attention right now, but it's not something new at all by any means. But I do definitely think that it could have been handled a little bit better. Like maybe don't put it on the back panel. And I don't know, maybe maybe their marketing should have been a little bit. Their marketing was just look like an outright lie, essentially saying that you can put this on your eyes, but then your palette says not safe for eyes. It's just like, 
what do you mean? Yeah. So basically the way that it was positioned, it just seems either shady or negligent, like an afterthought. I do feel like it was more negligent than shady. Agreed. Because I believe, because I think I am pretty sure Huda Beauty is a makeup artist herself and she is like running an empire, but she does rely on other people to know the regulations. And she does run her company, I believe, out of Dubai. And these are United States regulations. So everything is different. And so maybe she had already printed all of these labels and she just had to throw one not for safe on the back because that was like most cost effective for her. Because I have worked in like that situation as well, where like you realize something in a regulatory manner needs to be put on the label or whatever it is and you realize you already printed like I don't know like 200,000 units and you don't want to lose money so you have to find a way to make it work and maybe this was their way of making it work. Also like let's just take a moment and realize like how common over labels are in the beauty industry especially for multinational um you know brands there are multiple like multiple reasons um ranging from you know the eu has different regulations on like even how you can list your ingredient panel. So that could be an over label. Um, you might have a different distribution address. So if you have that screen printed on any of the packaging, that needs an over label. Um, you know, like in Saudi Arabia, um, it can only either be in English or Arabic. So a lot of companies that have only English and French on the packaging over label or, you know, specific to that market's um, packaging anyway. And then there's things like, well, you know, maybe a component. So like a part of the packaging isn't arriving in time to be able to, you know, fulfill an order that, um, you know, a vendor placed. So you might just slap an over label on a different screened bottle. So that doesn't mean the brand is being shady. It means they're they're just trying to deliver market to market. Unless you're buying from an unauthorized retail source, don't do that. <laughs> like always make sure you're buying from like authorized um, retailers and stockists. Uh, that's where I would be a little like, Meh. but if you're buying from authorized retailers and stockists, over labels, if you see them, like I wouldn't be worried. If you're super worried, reach out to the brand um, itself. TLDR, they're very common in in packaging and marketing. Moving on to our low-key and high-key products. Emmy, what's your low-key product for the week? My low-key product um, actually really ties into the article that we spoke about earlier. Um, mine is actually just for men, like the beard and mustache dye. <laughs> so I usually tint my own eyebrows because if I don't tint them, they are pretty much blonde and you can't see them at all. Um, and I have previously used like the Etude House um, brow gel. It's like a peel off thing. It usually lasts like a week. Obviously that has whistled out the last time I ran out of it. And so I just picked up some just for men um, at the store after seeing a couple people do that online for their brows. And I have to say like, I like it so much better. My brows look so much more full um, than they did with the peel off gel. So, you know, huge thumbs up for me. So my low-key product is from Makeup Forever. It's their eye and lip primer, but I use it as a specifically an eye primer and I've been using it for approximately, let's say like eight months now and I absolutely love it. I've used it with, from my like Anastasia palette to my Jeffree Star palette to like my cheapo like drugstore palettes. It makes my eyeshadow go on smoother, better, longer, everything that you want out of an eyeshadow primer. I love this stuff. And I feel like I haven't really heard anything about it like in the YouTube space, in the beauty space, really about this primer. And I just wanted to give it a shout out because I love it. And I use it every time I put on eyeshadow and it never fails me. So 
going into high key products, speaking about how I've actually been doing my makeup more often lately now that we're housebound, I've really re-fallen in love with the Pat McGrath Foundation. It is such like a nice, sheer, skin-perfecting lightweight formula like it's buildable but it just kind of feels like a second skin almost like your skin but better and it's not matte it's not too dewy it's like that perfect satin finish personally i am like a light six light medium a with the pink undertones and it just like matches my my skin um really really well and blends out even better so i've just really been loving that so my high key product is the Tarte Shape Tape and I actually completely hate it. I know the whole YouTube space was like, we love Tarte Shape Tape. It's amazing. It's full coverage. It looks great. Like, dude, like this stuff is thick and cakey on me. Like I have pretty dry skin and I have pretty good skin for the most part. And I never really need like super, super full coverage foundation. But like when I haven't slept really well, my eye bags get pretty purple. So I just wanted something to correct it. But it's just so thick that like even if I even like blink a little bit, or anything or have any sort of facial expressions that it causes like creases under my eyes. It doesn't look cute. I don't love it. When I set it with powder, it looks so cakey. And I feel like it got so popular on YouTube because it looks like camera ready makeup, like with makeup that you would wear if you were on TV show, if you were an anchor, like it looks good on camera. But in real life, you look fucking scary. <laughs> okay, so I actually completely agree with you. I've tried it and it was too much for me. You know, I like a little bit more of, um, you know, like second skin feeling things. And yeah, it's super heavy. It was really tacky. Um it just was like not for me, but I definitely see it as being not an everyday thing, but specifically more theatrical. So like if you are, you know, doing a look, if you're going to be like performing, if you're doing um, filming for like YouTube, that's where you would go for it. But like for me, it's it's a no. So we touched on like a lot of really great topics today and we really want to know what your thoughts on them are. So head over to our website, leave a comment, an audio file, um, email us, follow us on social. But yeah, let us know what your thoughts are on like, you know, the whole preservative and paraben debacles, the tea we spilled today. Like, what do you think? We want to hear from you. To gain access to our show notes and links that we mentioned earlier, be sure to head over to our website at www.vanitylabpodcast.com to be sure that you're staying up to date on when we're uploading and what we're uploading. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Vanity Lab Podcast. And don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, follow, whatever, which have you on whatever streaming platform that you are on. That way we continue to make content for you. And as always, the opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinions of our employers. Vanity Lab Podcast is hosted by me and Emmy Lovell. All of our sound production editing is by me. Transcripts are written by Emmy Lovell and all of our music comes from Audio Jungle.